Well, if you've been a part of the crossing for any number of years, you know that every Easter we like to do something that you know, gives a gift to our larger community in the Columbia area, even our state. Uh, we've done some things for many counties in our state, even St. Louis recently. But this year we want to focus on a really kind of hard-to-meet need. It's not as easy as giving money kind of need in our community, and that is the foster kids and foster families in Colombia. It's a hard thing, but you know, one of the things the Bible says is that the kind of service that really pleases God is, quote, to look after orphans and widows, and here's the key, in their distress. That the biblical message has always been what really God cares really about is helping vulnerable people at a really vulnerable stressful time in their lives. And so you might be thinking right now, there's no possible way uh, that I could be a foster parent right now. But the kind of difference we want to make in our community is a lot bigger than that. You don't have to be a foster parent to help us as a church collectively do something to significantly help foster kids, foster families in our community. There's all kinds of smaller commitments, larger commitments. There's a whole line of things that we can do depending upon how, you know, where you are at stage in your life, what you can do. There's ways for you to get involved. Let me just take a moment here, let you watch a video one of our staff, Garrick, put together to kind of let you know a little bit more what we're talking about. I don't even know if I could have imagined my life where it is right now just four or five years ago before we went down the fostering path. And here we are. That's probably one of my one of my favorite parts along this journey is that we do have a big family, a big, loud, crazy family. Cohen is six. He's our ball of energy. Callie is five. She is the boss. Nevaeh is five. She's got a good imagination. Joseph is two, and he's our athlete. And then Maribel is 19 months old, and she is our drama queen. So we hesitantly took the jump into foster care and didn't really know what we were doing. And we went through the classes, had decided to get our toes wet and provide respite care. So we've gone from um, not sure that we wanted to do this to now we have five kids total in our home. Our goals at the beginning were to just experience fostering system to see if our family can grow and then to just provide a home for these kids. I mean, growing up, I mean, they just want to be kids. They live a traumatic life. They have lots of things going on in their little minds that we just wanted to offer stabilization and a stable home for them. Who's going to start thumbs up and thumbs down? When you open your home to foster care, you're asking trauma and brokenness to sit next to you at the dinner table kind of thing. We had to come to terms that like we were okay with that and that it was, it was going to be okay. It's gonna be uncomfortable and it's, there's going to be times where you just don't understand, but God's still there and he's, he's watching over us. If anybody knew how big that brick wall was put up in front of me and for me to change to get to the position I'm in now, anybody can do it. It's not just committing to being a foster parent. Um, that's not the only thing you can do to help out the fostering system. There's so many different ways that you can be active with fostering. And so finding your little niche, what you can do um, to help out these kids that really just want to be kids and want to have a safe and loving family, loving home to live in. We've really grown as 
Our marriage has grown and we've learned that we've had to lean on each other. There have been some really hard moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've just really learned a lot about our marriage and each other through this process. Um, yeah. I've done some challenging things and fostering, I tell people, is the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, but would I change it? No. no. Today in Columbia, there are 320 children in foster care and 84 foster homes. When there are not enough foster homes in a city, a child is forced to move to another town, and the further away they get from their biological parent, the harder reunification becomes. They have to say goodbye to everything they've ever known. So when you're talking about a, a teacher, friends at school, uh, their bus driver, they the trauma compounds um, for them. And so those are more relationships they have to rebuild, more relationships they have to heal from uh, because they've had to say goodbye. There are numerous ways to help a child in foster care. You can volunteer to bring a meal once a month. You can become a respite provider. You can even volunteer at our Family Connections home, which is supervising visits for biological parents. If we got 200 more families involved in foster care, we really could make the next step of changing the landscape of our community. Because we know that if we can change the landscape of foster care, we're impacting generations to come and we're changing our city for the better. Now, Carrie's being a realist there. She's been doing this a while. So she knows the disappointments of trying to get people involved in foster care. So she says if we could do 200 people, families, that would be huge. But you know, a church like The Crossing, I'm we're praying that we can do more. Honestly, I'd love to see us kind of blow that out of the water, not because we're great, but because we really want to be somebody who reflects the message of Easter to our community in a significant way, and we understand what it means to be part of a believing community and joining together to find, as Chase said, to find our niche of what, what we can do. So what we want to do is it's kind of complicated because it's not an issue of just kind of giving money and so the best way we know to handle it is to invite you to come to a meeting in two weeks from today, April 23rd. There's going to be one in the morning on Sunday and the same meeting at night on Sunday. You just pick which option works best for you. And there's child care. It's not going to be a pressure thing. Nobody wants to pressure anybody because we really want you to do what you genuinely want to do. We just want to give you information. So if you want to come to that meeting or want more information, in front of you, in, your, in the chair in front of you, there's a QR code. If you took your phone and pointed to that, and that would give you more information and enable you to sign up for the meeting. Also, if you're in front, uh, you're not off the hook, uh, you can look at that screen right there, and there's a QR code. If you're watching online, you can do it that way as well. You know, just one of those things where, as a church... Doing what the Bible says, what God really values, to look after orphans and widows in their distress is something that Easter people understand the importance of, and it's really hard to get other people to do it. Let's be different. Let's be Easter people. Easter is today, and Easter, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word. Different things will come to different people's mind because it's a cultural phenomenon. Whatever comes to your mind, it's been culturally shaped. Because here we are in 2023, and it's weird to think this way, but it's true that you know all of us have been born in the last 
recent decades, however many few that is, it's a handful. But before that, all the people that lived have died, but they have created the world we live in. All these thousands of years of people learning things and discovering things and passing down to us who have been born in the recent decades, we just sort of are born and we look around and say, okay, this is what life is. Those values, the things we think are true, the things we think are important, they're handed down to us from people who are long dead. And we're just making the best out of what we think reality is. But here's, here's the thing about Easter is that nobody here has seen the event that we celebrate on Easter, and you don't know anybody who has. It's a cultural phenomenon. But what we do have are, if we, in, in a sense, all we have is the physical evidence of these, these copies of these ancient writings, copies of ancient letters written in the middle of the first century. We have those. And they're translated and, and all this, they've been collected over the years and translated in the very earliest years of Christianity into what we call the New Testament. So our New Testament now is a direct English translation from these very ancient Greek documents of the New Testament. And that's what we have. That's all we have. And, and so four of these documents, they call themselves Gospels. If we're just discovering something for the first time, we discover that these documents that are the first in our New Testament call themselves Gospels, and they claim to be eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' ministry in other ways, his eventual death, and his resurrection. In fact, there are over 12 separate accounts, eyewitness accounts, of Jesus' resur resurrection appearances to his disciples in the Gospels. I'm not going to talk about any of those today. Today, I'm just going to talk about one person, and it's not Jesus. I mean, I'll mention him. It's Easter. At Easter, we have to do that. I'm going to talk about one person, and that's the half-brother of Jesus, whose name was James. Now, James is weird because he's not the same James that you read about in the Gospels. There's Peter, James, John. That James was one of Jesus' disciples. That's not Jesus' Jesus half-brother, James. The half-brother James, there's no story about him. He's sort of a subtext story. He's kind of like a little, he's like a porpoise in the water that every now and then is mostly hidden, but every now and then comes up and we see his name and then he quickly disappears. And that's the half-brother of Jesus. We don't know much about him except what we can piece together the times that his name appears. The first time his name appears is in Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus, he's kind of started his ministry, he's been teaching, he's been doing miracles, he goes back to Nazareth for the first time after he starts his ministry. And the people are really confused. So Mark says, this is what the people say when Jesus went back to his hometown. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the guy that fixed my porch? Isn't this the carpenter that we've always had in Nazareth? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother, there it is, of James? Joseph, Judas, and Keith Simon? Aren't, aren't his sisters with us? I mean, don't we, don't we know this family? Isn't this, this, unless I'm missing something, isn't this the same Jesus we've always known? And aren't James and all these his brothers and his sisters? And what's weird is that James had the same attitude. He wasn't buying into the Jesus hype at all. 
And we know this because it appears again in Mark chapter 3, not the name, but the family. It says, then Jesus, Mark chapter 3, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So Jesus goes into this house to be a guest of somebody for a meal and the crowd just surrounds them. A mob would be another way to say it. And they couldn't even eat their meal. And so it says this, a little, just a kind of a throwaway phrase, but it says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. Sometimes we hear about a family intervention. When the family realizes that a family member is on a self-destructive path, that they have to take charge. And, you know, this kind of a, he's, he's out of his mind as a way of saying this is not sustainable. He's, something's gotten into him, and this is incredibly destructive. We've got to take charge. We've got to in, in, intervene. That was Jesus' half-brother, James. And we know that, well, it's when the Apostle John writes, and it's another throwaway phrase, but the Apostle John writes about in John chapter 7, James was taunting Jesus. And it's a weird interaction, and he's taunting Jesus. And then John explains why James was taunting Jesus. And it says this in John chapter 7, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. James was one of these people who was not buying into the Jesus hype. He was, as only a brother could do, Jesus tolerated, when you read the encounter, Jesus tolerated it very patiently, but he was taunting him. And he didn't believe in him. He grew up with him. This is his brother. How can he possibly believe all these radical claims Jesus was making about himself? I am the I am and all this. That, that, no, he wasn't buying into any of that. But it's strange because, again, we just sort of, there's no story about James in the Bible. His name just appears, and it appears kind of in the middle of the Bible here and there. But then when you get to the end, we find at the kind of toward the end of the New Testament, this letter, this ancient letter written about 15 years after the life of Jesus. It's written very early, in the middle, about the middle of the first century. And it's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. What's really strange is the very first words in the letter. Now, it was customary back then to have the very first word be the name of the person who's writing the letter. And we see that here. He says in the very first sentence of the letter, James, and then he describes himself, as it was customary to do, a servant of God. Now that would be something anybody in Jesus' family would have said. But then it gets really weird. He says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is 15 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And James, his brother, half-brother, is now saying he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Greek for Messiah. I'm a servant of Jesus the Messiah. That's not the big part. The big part is this word right here. Because what James is doing, he's writing in Greek as the all, all the New Testament is, ancient Greek. And the word he's using here in ancient Greek is the exact same word that when they made an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the old, what we call the Old Testament, when they wanted to put the name Yahweh, the name of God, the most often referred to name, the I Am, when God calls himself the I am, when they wanted to put the name of God in Greek, that's the word they use, the word that James is using right here. Here's what James is saying. I am a servant of 
the I am, Jesus Christ. I am a servant of Yahweh, Jesus Christ. I am a servant of the one who is the source of everything that exists in this entire universe. I am a servant of the one who's the giver of all life. I'm a servant of the eternal one, Jesus, his brother, the Christ. Now, anybody who's thoughtful has to ask, wait wait a minute, how do we get from him taunting Jesus and not believing in him according to his Jesus' disciples, to all the way to calling his brother the I am, the Christ. What in the world happens? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us. There's not a story, except there's another throwaway line if we connect the dots. Here's a big dot. Right about the same time that James was writing this epistle, this letter, the apostle Paul was writing the letter to a church in Corinth. And he was giving a list of all the appearances. It was about 15, 17 years, maybe 20 years after the life of Jesus. He's giving a list of all the people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And so we're going to pick up right in the middle of that bullet list in verse 6 of chapter 15. He says this, After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living. You can, you can ask them if you want to talk to them about their encounter with the risen Jesus. And then he says this, then, after that, then, he appeared to James. That's a big dot to connect, right? It explains how James can be the taunting younger brother who doesn't believe in Jesus and wants to intervene because he thinks Jesus is crazy all the way to toward the end, well, at least 15 years later, the end of the New Testament when he's saying he's the I am, he's the creator of the universe, he's the giver of all life. I picture it this way. I picture that when Jesus was crucified, James is overwhelmed with grief because he, he, he feels vindicated. He was right. As the older brother, he was telling his family, look, we've got to intervene. He is not on a sustainable course. We've got to stop him. He's going to bring his own destruction. Turns out James was right. That Jesus', Jesus teaching was so <laughs> over the top that he was crucified for blasphemy. He was crucified because he called himself God. And James is thinking, it didn't have to be this way. I could have done more. We could have done more. My brother's life is a tragedy. He was a good man. I grew up with him. He was the best of people, the best of brothers. And he was on a self-destructive path. And I could have done something, but I didn't. And now he's dead. But then days later, something happens where James is doing something. And he looks up and he sees his brother in a resurrected body. Days after he died, he saw him die on the cross. And I've got to, I picture it like this. I almost picture it like the end of a Christopher Nolan film where there's this sort of flashback that explains everything that you missed in the film. All of a sudden, I picture James having this flashback of his life, his childhood, his memories with Jesus. And they were raised in this home that was a home of poverty. They, Somehow along the way, when they were younger, their dad died. And so they had a single mom who was raising a family with five boys and sisters and a mom raising a family of five boys and sisters in Galilee in the first century under Roman occupation with Roman soldiers and Roman tax collectors extorting from everybody and oppressing everybody. That would not have been a good time. And he's remembering that, okay, wait a minute, my, wait a minute, wait, my brother was God? 
in all that? He was telling the truth. He really is the I am. And you can just see his world spinning around and realizing that poverty, this this suffering, that my brother being this servant, my brother being somebody who always gave of himself, always cared about the vulnerable, always was serving people, and he allowed himself to be arrested and beaten and crucified, that was God? And he realizes that one of the most foundational characteristics of God is humility and service and sacrifice. And it changed everything James thought about the world. And it changed every assumption he had about the world and about the world's assumptions about life. And that's why the rest of the letter that James wrote is one of the most direct letters that confronts our false view of how we think pride is the answer rather than humility, rather than service, rather than sacrifice. And James hits that head on in his epistle, his letter. In fact, in the first chapter, one of the very first things he says is this verse right here, James 1.27, religion, that's translated in the Greek word that means service in worship to God. Service in worship to God that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. See, he remembers his brother. He remembers the I am that he grew up with. And now it all makes sense. This sacrifice, this humility, this service. This is what God is like to to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This message that everybody is born into this past these people that have lived before us and they have passed down values. They've passed down assumptions about life, about how life works. And James says, uh, there's different cultures that have different things, but it always comes down to the toxicity of pride, the toxicity of self-recognition, the toxicity of power being the key to happiness, the toxicity of wealth being the key to life fulfillment, the toxicity of self-righteousness that that is what will absolutely ruin your life. Because the fabric of this universe is humility and sacrifice and service because that's who God is. Now, James had to put his money where his mouth is. The Bible doesn't say how he died. But we do have a document from the first century. It's not the Bible. But we do have a document written by a guy who was a Jew who was captured by the Romans and he wrote a history of the Jews for the Romans. His name's Flavius Josephus. And he wrote in 95 AD about something that happened back in 62 AD. And we have it, we can read it. It says this, he says, this is written in 95 AD, 94 AD by Flavius Josephus. The high priest in around 62 AD brought before them the brother of James who was called Christ, whose name was James. Oh, sorry, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. So here's this guy writing a history in 94 AD about something that happened in 62 AD, and he's saying that here's an event. A guy who was the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, was brought before the high priest and his council, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. 
Now we know from the Jewish law to be stoned meant that you were committing blasphemy. If James is going to be executed for blasphemy, he's being executed for blasphemy because he's saying his brother was the I am. His brother was Yahweh. And he put his money where his mouth is and he took the same path of Jesus that he at one time thought was crazy and he allowed himself to be executed because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the I am. And that the key to life is sacrifice. The key to the fabric of the universe is humility and service, not pride, not self-preservation through self-recognition and self-righteousness and power and wealth. Everything's upside down, he says. And that's why the whole letter of James, this is what James is about. It's about the upside downness of how we think, what we've inherited from those who have come before us and what we pass on to those who are born after us. But why? Even if James believed his brother was Yahweh, his brother was the I am, the source of the, all that exists in the universe, the giver of all life, why did he have to go all the way and let himself be executed for it? Why not just keep it private? Why not not make waves? Why risk his financial and his family and his life? We know he also had a family. Another verse I didn't read. Why risk all that? Well, he says it at the very end of his letter. Twice. He's got this phrase. It's this right here, he says in chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. He repeats it twice. The Lord's coming. His brother Jesus is coming. So he's saying that's why it all matters. is because the Lord is coming. He's saying the same thing the disciples all said. And they all said that because that's what Jesus said all the way through his ministry. That Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to heaven. But he is going to return one day. And he is going to bring bodily resurrection like his to all of his followers. And he is going to bring restoration to this entire world. And that even now, that future can partially come into the present by mending our broken lives. Little by little, even now, because the ascended Jesus indwells his people by the Holy Spirit and begins to mend their broken life, begins to put our lives back together. Even now, a kind of resurrection is beginning because of Easter. That's what you read in James's letter. And so there's a guy named Mako Fujimura. He's an artist in New York City. He's a strong Christian. Follow him on Twitter for years. And he's got a little video here that I thought kind of shows artistically what the message of Easter is for you and me. Let's take a moment and watch it. story of Kintsugi. This is a 20th century tea bowl. So Japan lacquer, which is used to mend the broken bowl. And the gold is mended, and you can tell by the way it's mended, the care of the design, the master's touch, his incredible humor is all evident here. And you can just look at it and admire this spider web, right? Trauma, mended, becomes something new, right? 
becoming something that a language that can speak into the divide, into the gap. And there was a tea master in 16th century Japan, Senorikyu, who developed the art of tea. This is what Japanese culture is based on now, who developed this form of peacemaking in the midst of feudal, literally, war period. Rikyu came and walked into that. He was able to create an art form of tea. I hold in my hand a North Korean bowl used by commoners in North Korea, but one that Rikyu saw as incredible potential in this ordinary bowl. To bring this into high tea of serving shoguns, <laughs> serving dictators and powers, communicated something. That's why this bowl even though it was broken somewhere down the line, the families of the tea master kept this ball, right? Because they know this was served to somebody important, because it was intentional communication to say, yes, you may be powerful, but there are more powerful things than your power. That's an artist communicating the power. That is to bring humility, creativity and imagination, what I call sanctified imagination. And that's how this art of Kintsugi began, this mending with gold and making the, the object that is mended more valuable than before it, it was dropped on the floor. The beauty of how God not only mends us, but because we are broken, we are renewed and this Kintsugi bowl is far more valuable than it was before it was broken. If you are here to help with communion, would you come forward right now? I love what Mako just said, that, that, that there's something about the gospel that is not just mending our lives, but the fact that our lives are now broken and that God mending our lives is going to make them, is making them more valuable, more beautiful, more glorious than they would have been before. I don't know, there's something about that that I think he's right on because I think it really taps into everything that Jesus taught. There's something about it that God is using our brokenness to help fix the brokenness in other people as he mends our own brokenness now. But now is just a sign of the resurrection of being completely mended into a beauty and a glory and a restoration that we can only imagine, can't even imagine. That's why when Jesus was taking the bread and the wine at the Passover meal before he was crucified, the last time he was able to eat a meal before being arrested, it was right before he's being arrested, he said, this is my body given for you sacrificed for you. He took the cup of wine at the meal and he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The mending of brokenness is something not just a forgiveness of sins but the whole meaning of the death and the resurrection of Jesus is something that 
We remember when we take the bread and take the wine into our lives. When you take the bread and the wine into your body, in a mysterious way we're not going to understand, in some way you are bringing your future resurrection into your present right now. You are bringing the mending of your glorious future into your body, into your life, into your present right now. So if you're somebody who believes this, you want this, we invite you to come forward. It's messy, just like life. You'll come forward. You'll end your way up here or back there if you're in the, in the, in the seats in the back. You'll take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the wine. This is real wine that's in our hands. Or if you prefer grape juice, that's on the stools. You can dip it in that and eat it and take and eat into your body, your future resurrection, your future beauty your future glory in Christ. People of God, when you're ready, come to the table of the Lord.